The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 29, a psalm of David. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. And he strips the forests bare. And in his temple, everyone says, Glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Pretty wonderful psalm there. Let's see here. We're going to be today in Leviticus, starting in Leviticus 26. We're going to go 1 through 13. This is entitled Promised Blessings. Now, if you've never been in this church before and you haven't watched the sermons online, we follow a completely different pattern of uh, of uh, church than most places. We just simply started with Genesis and we've been working slowly through the Bible. We'll be done with the Bible completely in the year 2937. But uh, we're in the book of Leviticus. Yeah, it'll be, we're going to rush when we get towards the end. But um, we, yeah, start date 2937. Um, it, it's, it's a little more mechanical. You're not going to get a lot of life application and feely stuff in our sermons. All we do is we take the word of God and we say, this is what it means. This is any historical, prophetic, pictorial, and um, uh, actual implications that we can use for the study of the Word of God, okay? I don't give a lot of life application, but uh, I believe that this, at least for us, is the best way. There are other churches that have their own way of preaching sermons, but for us, we're going through the Bible. We're learning the mechanics of how God deals with people, and understanding those things, we can then apply them to our lives. And that's just my preference. There, I don't think there's any right or wrong way in this, but uh, this is the way that we do it here. So, um, Leviticus 26, starting in verse 1, this is a very somber chapter after verse 13. I'll tell you that. It uh, is the blessings and curses upon Israel. And it's very sad what will come upon Israel because of their disobedience. Leviticus 26, verse 1, you shall not make idols for yourselves. Neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts 
and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably, and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. Chapter 26 of Leviticus details the blessings and the curses which were to come upon the people of Israel based on our obedience or disobedience to the words of law which have been laid down so far and which will continue to be laid down as the law continues to be relayed to the people. Because these promises have been so exactingly fulfilled in the later pages of Scripture, Objections have been raised by naturalistic and rationalistic critics of the Bible that Moses could not be the author of this chapter. Instead, they claim that the words were written during the times of the kings of Israel, as late as the 8th or even as late as the beginning of the 7th century B.C. They have done this because they do not accept prophetic revelation as something which is possible, and therefore, what is presented must have been written much, much later. In other words, to them, neither God nor man can tell the future except as far as logical deductions can be made. For example, we can logically deduce that a team will win tomorrow's game because their opponents are simply not in the same league as those they will be facing. We can logically deduce that the stock market will crash in X number of months or X number of years based on repeatable patterns, which have been documented in the past, and so we can tell the future, and so on. But for these scholars, the words of Leviticus 26, like many of those of the prophets, are so exact, and they are so specific, and the fulfillment of them is so exactingly detailed and in line with what is written right here in this chapter, that it is simply not possible that they could have been penned by Moses. No amount of logical deduction could bring the two into such absolute harmony. If one holds to a naturalistic view of the world, the prophecies contained here can have no other possible explanation than having been written at a later date. However, the stupidity of this view is all the more evident, even apart from both logic concerning God's nature and mere faith itself, when one understands that the words of chapter 26 presuppose not one, but two or more exiles for the people of Israel. There is no doubt by anyone in any reasonable school of biblical scholarship that Leviticus predates the second exile of Israel by many, many hundreds of years. How do we know that? Because we have documents that are older than the second exile of Israel. Even if it wasn't penned by Moses, and it was instead penned in the 8th or the 7th century BC as claimed by these knuckleheads, their logic breaks down completely in that a second exile did take place. The words of Leviticus 26 continue to describe exactingly what has occurred to Israel during their second exile, and even more, that the return of Israel to their land in 1948 more exactingly reflects the promises of the Lord contained in this chapter, especially towards the very end of it. 
This is one reason, among others, that the modern state of Israel is considered an aberration by many supposed scholars. Claims are even made that the people occupying the land are not the same people that are being addressed here in Leviticus 26. But if one honestly looks at Israel of today, in the land of Israel today, no other conclusion can be realistically reached except that the prophetic words of Leviticus 26 are, in fact, realized in Israel. And thus are the words of the Lord given as a prophetic basis for what has come about. Our text verse for today comes from Ezekiel chapter 33. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Prophecy, especially future prophecy, is an exceptionally tricky and complicated thing. Far too often, people claim they know what lies ahead based on what the Bible says about certain issues. However, it is an extremely rare thing that someone in the past would read scripture and know exactly what would come to pass and in the way and matter it in fact actually occurred. Think of the birth of Jesus. It says he's going to be from Nazareth. It says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It says he's this and that. And nobody could figure it all out. They had no idea what would happen. Bible prophecy is given normally as a general outline of what lies ahead. And piecing together all of what is given on a future event is certainly both a challenge and something which will be shown in error most of the time. In other words, the Bible is never, never intended for divination about what lies ahead. It is given in broad brushstrokes of what is coming, but not in minute detail. However, when the event comes to pass, one can then look back on what has been prophesied and come to a truly aha moment. All of the verses which pointed to what was coming suddenly come into crystal clear focus. In this, the prophet who relayed the words is seen to have been a true prophet, like Ezekiel. And the Lord who inspired the prophet is seen as beyond the realm of the naturalist. Instead, he is the omniscient, sovereign Lord who transcends both space and time. In Leviticus 26, there are explicit prophecies which are obvious on the surface and which are simply awaiting their obvious fulfillment. There are other portions of this chapter which, when taken together with other portions of Scripture, were only realized as prophetically fulfilled after the events took place. Understanding this, for us in the church today, there are certain future prophecies which are on the surface obvious. We know they are coming, and we can simply await their fulfillment, fully trusting that they will come about because they are of the same reliable source as the other prophecies, which have been given exactingly and which have been exactingly fulfilled already. And then there are things which are coming which will only be known as fulfilled after the events have taken place. The importance of not mixing these two types of prophecy together cannot be overstated. The Bible is not, as I already said once, a tool for divination. Predictions about certain dates and specific events occurring at specific times are to be rejected outright. But those things which are said to be ahead and which are carefully recorded for us to understand the broad outline of the future are fair game for us to know that the future is set and that those things will come about. As one example of hundreds of examples, the Bible says that there will be a rapture. I know many people dismiss that, but if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can come to no other 
conclusion if you're reading it properly. That is open, it is explicit, and it is guaranteed. It is going to happen. The Lord is going to call us out of here someday. However, the Bible does not tell us when that will occur. Therefore, no amount of study or speculation will ever bring us to an understanding of the timing of that event. Let us be wise in how we handle prophecy, and let us not set ourselves in the position where we claim to know what is reserved to God alone. These truths are to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just one long thought for you today. It's promised blessings to Israel. This chapter begins with no new introduction, such as the Lord spoke to Moses saying, or something like that. Thus, what is found here is actually a continuation of the discourse to Moses, which has been ongoing since verse 25-1. Despite this, the chapter division here is appropriate because it will deal with the blessings and the curses which Israel can expect based on obedience to the Lord or disobedience to him. The placement of the first two verses, however, are said by some scholars to be wholly inappropriate for starting this new chapter. Instead, it's claimed that they belong to the previous chapter. Charles Ellicott, who I admire greatly, in particular, finds the placement to be detrimental to our study of what is occurring. He says, the first two verses of this chapter are still a part of the previous section in the Hebrew original. By separating them from their proper position and making them begin a new chapter, both the logical sequence and the import of these two verses are greatly obscured. He provides his logical reason for the claim by saying that the idolatry of verse 1 and the Sabbath law of verse 2 are tied into being a Hebrew slave in chapter 25, warning them to abstain from idolatry and to keep the Sabbath despite their indentured status. This is wholly unrealistic as an analysis. Both idolatry and Sabbath observance laws are given to all of the people, regardless of their status as free men or as slaves. Rather, the warning of these two commands actually set the stage for what will follow. In Leviticus 19, these same two precepts are given at the beginning of that chapter, but the order of them is reversed. It first speaks of keeping the Sabbaths of the Lord in verse 3, and then not turning to idols in verse 4. From there, the rest of the chapter dealt with commands, statutes, and judgments for the people to follow. The same is true here. The Lord is highlighting these particular commands at the outset of what is to follow, and then he will give the consequences for not following them. In other words, these two commands are being relayed again to call to mind all of the other laws which have been given. As Joseph Benson rightly states, the substance of their religious laws are here recapitulated in two chief articles on which all of the rest very much depended, and God, by Moses, inculcates upon them. These two major precepts, along with reverence for the sanctuary, which is also found in verse 3, are given to keep the Israelites from corrupt and superstitious practices. Further, the reversal of the order of these commands, idolatry and Sabbath keeping, between chapter 19 and here is actually highlighted in the fact that back in Exodus 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, the commands are reversed from those in chapter 19. Like here in chapter 26, idolatry precedes Sabbath observance in the Ten Commandments. 
And so, not to beat this point to death, but so that you can understand what is going on, the Lord is giving the first two verses of this chapter as a summary of all of the laws and precepts given to Israel. From this solemn reminder, he will then give them magnificent promises for obedience and terrifying promises of curses for disobedience. The words of this chapter are exactingly revealed in the rest of the pages of the Old Testament. And in the second exile of Israel, after the rejection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, just as the Lord promises right here in Leviticus 26. Verse 1, you shall not make idols for yourselves. Lo ta'asu lachem elalim. No shall you make to you nothings. The word elalim comes from the word al or no, and thus it literally means nothings. These nothings are then set in contrast to that which is of the highest value of all, Jehovah, the one true God. Paul understood this concept, this nuance, and he repeats it in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in all the world, and there is no other God but one. To make a nothing and then attribute value to it reduces the maker of the nothing to the same level as the nothing that they have made. In other words, to reverence the name of the Lord is to bring glory to the Lord, who then returns his favor to that person. But to exalt a nothing will result in exactly the opposite. Psalm 115 explains that those who do such things hold the same value as what they produce. They become Nothings. Here's what the 115th Psalm says. But our God is in heaven. He does what he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. <laughs> Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Verse 1 going on, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves. The Pesel, or image, was first mentioned in the giving of the Ten Commandments and has not been seen since. It comes from Pasal, which means to cut or to hew into shape. Thus, this is specifically a carved image. Such an image could be either of a false god or an attempt to represent the true god. Both of these were forbidden. A false god would be a challenge to Jehovah, and an image claiming to be in his likeness would be an affront to him. Nothing in creation could represent his infinite glory and being. The pillar, or matzebah, was first seen when Jacob set up a pillar when he had his dream of a stairway rising up to heaven way back in Genesis chapter 28. In this case, it is any sacred pillar which is used for worship and or fertility rites. Such pillars will be seen throughout the time of the kings of Israel, including those to Baal. Verse 1 continues, Nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. Here is a new word which will be seen six times in the Bible, maschit, or imagination. It comes from the word sekvi, which signifies the mind, and thus it is speaking of the imaginations of the mind in forming a carved image. Any carved stone image formed by a man's mind whether of something real, like a bear, or something imagined, like a unicorn or a sphinx, is surely included in this concept. This would be inclusive of images carved into stone as well, such as depictions and walls and the like. To have such images could, 
and it would inevitably lead the people into idolatry. This is made explicit with the words to bow down to it. Verse 1 continues, For I am the Lord your God. The reason for the commands concerning the conduct of the people, which has been given to them countless times already, is that Jehovah is their God. They committed to this fact, and they are accountable to him as such. This remains unchanged to this day. Though the law is set aside in Christ, and this is something we should not miss, the law is set aside in Christ, they have as a collective group of people not come to Christ. Thus, they are as accountable today to this law as they were on the day that these laws were spoken to them. This precept is not to be missed. What is said in this chapter concerning his anticipated treatment of them did not end with the coming of Jesus Christ. The blessing and the burden remains. This is revealed explicitly in Daniel chapter 9, where seven more years are given to Israel under this law to come to Christ as the fulfillment of it. In the meantime, the words of Leviticus 26 have continued to be revealed in and through Israel for even the last 2,000 years. Verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. These words are an exact repetition of Leviticus 19, verse 30, word for word and even letter for letter. These two laws were given to draw the people near to him. The intent was that in especially following these precepts, they would be more likely to guard against idol worship, and instead they would focus on the Lord. Unfortunately, Sabbath observance and even the honor of having the Lord's sanctuary among them became markers of perceived self-goodness and acceptability because of who they were, not because of who the Lord is. Ezekiel shows that this is true. Even from their inception as a people, he says that they profaned the Lord's Sabbaths from the start, and they did it by allowing their hearts to go after idols a thing which profaned the very reason for the giving of the Sabbath. Here's what he says in Ezekiel chapter 20. So I raised my hand in an oath to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands, because they despised my judgments and did not walk in my statutes, but profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols." Likewise, the prophet Jeremiah makes this perfectly clear to the people concerning their regard of the Lord's sanctuary. Here's what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. They're boasting that they have the temple of the Lord, and so they're immune from the penalty of the Lord. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them. Verse 3 now begins what verses 1 and 2 prepared the people's ears to hear. They were given the instructions on what to do in those verses as a summary of all of the laws that they have thus far been presented and of all of the laws that are yet to be proclaimed. With that behind them, and yet as a reference for each section of what the Lord will now proclaim, the conditional statements of Leviticus 26 now begin with the words, If you walk. 
the pulpit commentary rightly says of these words, the free will of man is recognized equally with God's controlling power. The statement is conditional if it presupposes free will among the people. However, what follows will demonstrate that God will take those choices and he will control the outcome of the people based on what they choose to do. In this verse, the words are spoken to all of the people. In other words, the subject matter is not what individuals would do concerning their own conduct, but what the people collectively would do in keeping the words of the covenant and adhering to the precepts of the Lord. If a miscreant was found among the people, he's obviously violating the law. How would the people collectively handle him in accord with that given law? It is this collective group to which these words are given. The Lord will begin with explaining the blessings of what lay ahead. If the choice was obedience to him and to his word, the germ of this blessing was initially promised way back in the giving of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 6 and 20, verse 12, he gave promises of blessings for obedience to his word. In Exodus 23, he continued with the promises of what he would do for the people if they remained faithful and obedient to him. These early references will now be fully developed and explained to the people. They are words of surety, they are words of encouragement, and they are words of warning. Israel must pay heed, or Israel will discover what it means to fail to pay heed. Verse 4, then I. An important point right here at the giving of the first promise is that it is stated in the first person. This will continue all the way through this chapter. The Lord personally claims that he will fulfill his word in and towards the people. I will do this, and I will do that. This is in contrast to the comparable passage of blessings and curses, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. There, Moses reiterates the main idea of what is stated here, but he does it in the third person. The Lord will do this, and the Lord will do that. Verse 4 continues, We'll give you rain in its season. Beginning the blessings with Geshem, or rain, is not a word to be taken lightly. Without rain, everything else in the land would come to ruin. With rain, there would be the possibility of abundance and satisfaction. Unlike Egypt, where they had left, the land of Israel did not have a massive river running through it, which could then be diverted onto the flat surrounding countryside. Instead, it is a land of hills and valleys. Without rain, it would be a barren waste. But in obedience to him and to his word, he promises the rain to come in its season. For Israel, under ideal conditions, there are two major rains, the former rains and the latter rains, which are noted in Deuteronomy 11, verse 14. The former rains are those which come at the time around the autumnal equinox, normally around late October to early November. That is when the winter crops of wheat and barley would be sown. After this, heavier showers would fall in November and December. The latter rains begin to fall in March, before the winter crops are harvested, but at the time when the summer seed is sown. These rains last a few days or even a period of just a few hours. The clouds which told of the coming of this latter rain were so welcomed to the people that Solomon equates it to the favor of the king. Here's what he says in Proverbs 16. In the light of the king's face is life. And his favor is like a cloud of the latter rain. Joel 2 speaks of both of these rains as well and the blessings of them. He says, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, 
and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. James in the New Testament does so as well. He equates the coming of the former and the latter rains in the land of Israel to the return of the Lord. Pay attention. This pertains to every person sitting in here right now. As the cycle of rains in Israel was disrupted for 2,000 years during their exile, and as these rains have returned to their normal cycle since 1948, we find in the words of James, great comfort. The return of Christ is, in fact, very near. Here's what it says. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That couldn't have been fulfilled before because this is directed to the land of Israel and he is speaking about the land of Israel alone. And the former and the latter rains were disrupted. When the Jews were kicked out of there, guess what the Romans did? They cut down all of the trees in the land to build siege works. The cycle was disrupted and it was a barren waste. Wait until next week when I give you the introduction to our sermon and pay careful heed to what I'm going to tell you. It was laid waste. There was nothing there. There were no people there. It was very carefully documented by people over the centuries. And we know this is true. But now, all of a sudden, the Jews are moved back into the land, and they have done what no people have done for the past 2,000 years, and they have brought the land back to fruitfulness, and at the same time, the rains have returned. Verse 4 continues, The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Here the word yebul, or produce, is introduced. It signifies that which is brought forth out of the land, and thus we would say produce. Along with other such things, the Lord promises that the trees would likewise be fruitful. One can see in this fields of tomatoes, rows of apple trees, and every type of abundance in every field. The words of all of this verse, of verse 4, closely match Ezekiel 34, verses 26 and 27. You're going to see in the next few verses that Ezekiel really covers almost word for word what is being said back here in Leviticus 26. Here's what he says. I will make them and the places around them my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. Verse 5, your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. Here is a unique word in scripture, daish, or threshing time. That is derived from the word dush, or the act of threshing. You can almost hear it in the word itself, dush, dush. Another new word, batsir, or vintage, is introduced. That signifies the clipping off of clusters of grapes and thus the time of the vintage. The idea here is that there will be such abundance that the productivity of the field will simply go on and on and on. There will always be work and it will always be abundantly productive and fruitful. This will be so much the case that while they are still tending to one harvest, the next would be calling out for attention to it. These words closely match Amos 9 verse 13. But even more than matching, just after that, in verse 915, as the book of Amos comes to a close, is a passage which is predictive prophecy and which has never been fulfilled in history. Thus, it is something which belongs to our future right now and which points to Israel's return to their land back in 1948. 
Here's what it says. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Here's what matches what we're reading right now. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. Here it is, verse 15, the last verse of Amos. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. That has never been fulfilled in human history because Israel was pulled up in A.D. 70. And now they're back in the land and the Lord has said from this time they will never be pulled up again. There has never been a time in which Israel was planted and not pulled up. But the restoration of Israel in 1948 has made this prophecy possible. Other prophecies show us that before these promised blessings come about, many troubles and much, much loss of life will come to Israel. But the word of God states that they shall never be uprooted again. The word is faithful and Israel will stand. Verse 5 continues, you shall eat your bread to the full. These words correspond to Ezekiel 34, verse 29. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land. Again and again, Ezekiel promises that which was promised first by Moses. The people had rebelled, but the people would receive grace. For those at the time of Moses, however, when they left Egypt and were still on their way to Sinai, They complained against the Lord, saying that in Egypt they had eaten bread to the full. It was at that time that the Lord gave them manna to sustain them. The Lord promises that in Israel and in their obedience to his precepts, the people would be filled with bread, just as they were in Egypt. But they would be free and they would be cared for in a much better way. This is seen with the next words. Verse 5 continues, and dwell in your land safely. These words are again reflected in Ezekiel 34. There the prophet says they shall be safe in their land. As Israel was delivered from the bondage of Egypt, the Lord sent them into bondage again for their transgressions. But he promised that like Egypt, their time for this would also come to an end. Verse 6, I will give you peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. Once again, Ezekiel 34 repeats the beautiful promises of Leviticus 26 to the downtrodden of this day with the words, I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. For obedient Israel, there was and there is the promise of safety in the land. Even with the immense abundance which overflows from the harvests, the Lord promises them safety. There was to be no terror at night that someone would come along and steal their efforts away or harm them as they peacefully lay sleeping. Verse 6 continues, I will rid the land of evil beasts. And again, from the same verse as before, Ezekiel's words are a restatement of the original promises back in Leviticus 26. There we read, I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land. The promise here is one of security, but the term evil beasts means more than simply lions and bears and jackals. Rather, the term chaya or living is used to describe the formation of man way back in Genesis 2 verse 7. Therefore, this promise to Israel is to be taken euphemistically to include wicked men of the land who form plans and schemes against Israel. The reference to Ezekiel's prophecy of the future seems obvious when considering the many factions who are intent on Israel's destruction today who make them live in fear even today. Be they Fatah, 
Hamas or Hezbollah or countless others who invade their land, terrify their souls and swallow up the Lord's people. Verse 6 continues, and the sword will not go through your land. The words of this clause are seen substantially repeated in Ezekiel 34 as well. There it says in verse 28, and they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them. The Lord has tied the evil beasts in with the sword going through the land. Thus, Ezekiel's words concerning the beasts of the land is speaking of the enemies of Israel euphemistically. They are as evil beasts come to destroy the flock of the Lord. But the flock of the Lord can only be considered as such when they are right with the Lord. Today, the evil beasts within the land and the evil beasts of the surrounding lands do come and they do destroy. A day lies ahead when this will no longer be the case. Israel was the Lord's and they betrayed him. They have now received grace and they have been returned to their ancient land. But their lot for the immediate future is one of uncertainty and sure grief. When they return to him, he will be waiting with open arms. Verse 7, you will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. The words here are fulfilled throughout the times of the judges and the kings. When Israel was in favor with the Lord, they fell upon their enemies and destroyed them mightily. At one time, the power of Israel was so great, it was so vast, it was so massive that the Bible records this in one kings. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river, meaning the Euphrates River, to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. The entire massive piece of land they ruled over. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. This had come about by the great battles won by Saul and then his own father David. By the time Solomon reigned, there was peace on all sides because the enemies of Israel had been chased and destroyed by the hungry sword of Israel. Verse 8, five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. The words here are proverbial and they signify that a small number would be able to defeat a very large multitude. The Hebrew word is revava. It means a multitude. The Greek translation of the Old Testament says murias or myriad. It is an unspecified number. At other times, different numbers are used to express the same thought. Further, they're given in relation to Israel defeating their enemies and in Israel being defeated by their enemies. However, the precept, though proverbial, is found realized several times in Scripture. In Joshua 23, verse 10, Joshua cites this precept as an assured promise of the Lord in order to spur his people on to battle. He says there that one could chase a whole thousand. In the book of Judges, verse 331, Shamgar, the son of Anat, had killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. In Judges 15, verse 15, Samson is said to have killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. In 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan and his armor bearer came against the Philistine garrison, killed many, and this led to Israel seizing the initiative and wiping out many, many Philistines. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 8, Josheb Shabet is said to have raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Finally, when Gideon and 300 men came against a camp of 135,000 men, they led the enemy into such a panic that they killed one another while Gideon pursued them, encouraging other Israelites to join them and killing as they went. It says that at the end of the battle, 120,000 warriors had fallen. 
These and other stories show that while this is a proverbial saying, it is also one which holds more than a grain, but a bucket full of truth. Verse 9, for I will look on you favorably. The words literally say, and I will turn to you. It signifies a sign of grace from the Lord. This sentiment is seen, for example, in Psalm 25. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. In turning to them, he promises three positive things. The first is verse 9 going on and make you fruitful. This is not merely multiplication, but abundant health, continuance, brilliance, renown, and so on. It is one thing to have a whole brood of regular children, but another to have children who are warriors, kings, and the like. One cannot be considered a curse, but the other can be considered a blessing. This is the intent of these words. Verse 9 continues, multiply you. In addition to being fruitful comes the second promise, that of multiplication. Not only would Israel flourish in brilliance, renown, and so on, but these would be many in number. When people came to the land, they would say, every man is a giant among men. Such is the intent here. But these first two merely led to the third. Verse 9 continues, and confirm my covenant with you. The Lord's word to Israel refers back to his promises to Abraham. In Genesis 15, verse 18, the first of such terminology is used. Here's what it says. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. After that, the covenant was solidified with the sign of circumcision and the promises which went along with it. That was recorded in Genesis 17, verses 4 through 8. Here's what it says there. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Avram, but your name shall be Avraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I have given to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And this is what the Lord will refer to later in this chapter, this covenant. He's not referring to the Mosaic covenant. Remember that so when we get to that sermon, it will all clear up. It's an astonishing thing that he says at the end of this chapter. The scholar Kyle rightly notes that the words now in Leviticus are not merely the preservation of this covenant, but the continual realization of the covenant of grace by which the covenant itself was carried on further and further towards its completion. The promises are intended to keep the people in the land and increase them as they continued toward the coming of the Messiah. The curses, though negative in nature, are intended for exactly the same purpose. Israel would be controlled by God, but it would be a controlling of their own making, for good or for evil, as they moved into a future where Christ would someday be revealed. Verse 10, you shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. The words here are necessary. He has already promised this type of blessing, but after doing so, he then said that he would multiply the people. At what point would that turn south and mean a lack? I mean, the more people, eventually you can't feed them all, right? The answer is at no point. As they multiplied, the Lord would continue to provide. There would be no lack, even in great multiplication of the people. This would be so much so that even as they ate of the old store of food, they would eventually have to remove the old on account of the new. 
One can imagine great stores of older grain being carried over to the herds and given to them. The food of kings would become fodder for the beasts because of its abundance. Verse 11, I will set my tabernacle among you. Two promises are made in this verse. The first is that the Lord will set his mishkan or tabernacle among the people. This is the greatest promise of all. And it is one which gives the idea of reposing. He will dwell among his people. The Greek translation of this word is used in the New Testament when speaking, believe it or not, of Jesus Christ, his physical being. It says there, and the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of a father, full of grace and truth. The coming of Christ was to be the fulfillment of this for Israel, but they rejected him. From there, Christ went to the Gentiles and has dwelt among them and in them for 2,000 years, dwelling in those who have called out to him for salvation. The second promise is that verse 11 continues, my soul shall not abhor you. The word ga'al or abhor is introduced right here in the Bible. It's used only 10 times in all of scripture, but five of them, half of them are right here in this chapter. Four of those show an action by Israel and a response by the Lord. If the people abhor his laws, he will in turn abhor them. The Lord right at the beginning gave them the choice, and that choice is first given in the positive. Obey me, and I shall not abhor you. Instead, verse 12, I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. To abhor is to take that which is vile and to simply cast it away. But the Lord promised Israel that if they obeyed his precepts, he would do just the opposite. He would set up his dwelling place among them, and he would walk among them and be their God. To walk with someone is to be in agreement with them. This is seen in Amos 3, verse 3, where the question is asked, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? The answer is no. The Lord did walk with Israel while they were obedient. And they were his people when this was true. However, in exile, the Lord was not among them, and they were separated from him as his people. Instead, the promises were given to Israel. They went off to the Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we read this coming to pass. Listen to Paul's words, how they match the verse we're in right now. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul cites Hosea with the same sentiment in Romans 9, verse 25, to show that the Gentiles would replace Israel during their time of exile and punishment. However, Peter picks up on Paul's words for the Jews of the end times, and he reapplies them to Israel, saying that they were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have obtained mercy. A time lies ahead when the favor of God will return from the Gentile back to the Jew once again. The rapture will occur, and then his eyes will be fully and entirely on completing his redemptive plans for them and for the world at large. Thank you. I'm going to stop right there, and I'm going to get that. Uh, mm. Never done that during a sermon, but you tempted me, so I've done it. I can now say I've done something I've never done before. Verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. The Lord has on several occasions thus far reminded Israel that he has brought them out of Egypt. They were brought from slavery to freedom, leaving a land of distress and heading to a land of peace and security. They had lived the former life and cried out in anguish because of it. Now they would be given a new direction and were admonished to take heed to the Lord's word and live in that freedom. 
Don't live in bondage. Verse 13 finishes us up with these words. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. Here we have terminology which shows the highly oppressive life that Egypt was for the Israelites. The Lord uses a new term here, motah, or bands of a yoke, to describe their previous plight. These were poles or rods which were laid upon the necks of animals as a type of yoke or inserted into a yoke to fasten their heads together to keep them level. In this, they would render the animal completely helpless to resist, and they would be incapable of straightening up. The idea is that Israel was so oppressed with labor that it was a yoke which bent their backs and kept them from upright freedom of movement. The Lord had broken those yokes from the people, and this allowed them to walk in freedom. Our verses today finish with a word which is used only here in the entire Bible, komemayut, or upright. Where there was bondage, there was now to be freedom. Where there was affliction, there was now to be blessing. Israel had been given the choice, and the promises based on obedience are magnificent in the extreme. Unfortunately, as we see in all the rest of Scripture, they failed to obey. Eventually, they went back under a yoke, and they have continued under it for millennia. But returning one more time to Ezekiel 34, verse 27, we see that someday that will change. It says, And they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke, same terminology, and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. Their time of freedom lies ahead. And as always, these physical truths which really occurred have a greater spiritual meaning in Jesus Christ. Israel being brought out of Egypt pictures man's being brought out from under the power of sin and the power of the devil. The yoke upon their necks is that which bound us. Some of us had afflictions of drugs. Some of us had afflictions of sex. Some of us had afflictions of alcohol. Some of us have been addicted to work. I know I'm guilty of that. I've always been addicted to work. Anything that we put above God is a source of idolatry, and it is a source of separation from God. But Christ can and does free us when we come to him. He resolves the sin problem the moment that he redeems us. From there, if we allow him to work in us, he resolves the other issues in our lives as well. The yoke is already broken, folks, but too many of us continue to carry it around. And there is another yoke which many Christians continue to carry as well. It is the yoke of the law. Paul warns us not to get entangled again with a yoke of bondage, meaning the law of Moses. Christ has fulfilled it, and thus he is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. Instead, we are to put our faith, our trust, and our hope in the completed work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Let us keep ourselves from falling back into sin, pictured by Egypt, which Christ redeemed us from, and let us keep ourselves from falling back into the bondage of the law, which Christ has fulfilled for us. Instead, we are now to live our lives in holiness and in intimate fellowship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you've never been freed from the yokes of this world, today is the day, good friend. Call on Christ and live in Him, live for Him, and live in anticipation of Him always. I'm going to read you something I read just a little while ago, or I I cited to a friend of mine, and I want you to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us, because I mentioned addictions, and quite a few of us in here have suffered with addictions in our lives, and uh, Jesus gave us these beautiful words to show us that he is the one that, the only one that can free us from them. He says this in Matthew 12, 
verse 43. I'm in Mark. I got to get the right book, which is Matthew. Always got to have the right M there, Charlie. Let's hear Matthew 12. It says, verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, you've got an addiction? Anybody? Pornography, right? You say, I'm going to clean up my, my house. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. That addiction is going to go somewhere. I'm telling you what. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. There's this beautiful house. You got your life all fixed up, don't you? I got rid of my addiction, my drugs, my sex, alcohol, whatever it is. Then he goes, meaning the demon, and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. We've all got to fill ourselves with something. And there is no thing on this planet that we can fill ourselves with that will satisfy. I don't care what it is. You know, I'm going to get a new car. I'm so happy. The next day it gets a scratch in it and you're no longer satisfied. It doesn't matter what. I'm going to get married to this beautiful girl and the next day she starts nagging at you. No offense, girls. But you understand there's no thing that will ever fully satisfy us. Nothing except God because he is the source of all good things. This is the lesson of the Bible, and this is what Leviticus 26 is showing Israel in advance of the curses. He's giving them the blessings. I am your blessing, and from me will stem all good things. You're going to plow, and you're going to have the reaper coming up behind you. Or is it vice versa? Anyway, you understand the symbolism. When you're out there harvesting the grain, it's going to be time now to harvest the, the vines because there's so much abundance. And when you don't listen, it's all going to go to pot. It's all going to just be ruined because you don't pay attention to me. And this is what the Lord asks us to do is to always think on him, to always put him first in our lives. And he will satisfy every need according to his wisdom because he is that great source of all things. Our closing verse comes from uh, Matthew 11, one chapter before that one. And it says there, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden for I will give you rest. Think of the Israelites there in Egypt and they're burdened, they're stooped over, they can't straighten up. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. I'm promising you Canaan. I'm promising you your own land free from enemies if you will simply pay heed. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a promise. From the Lord of all creation, he promises us ease and happiness if we'll come to him. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to have cancer and we're not going to have fights. And we're not, That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the spiritual rest. It says in Hebrews 4, 3, now we who believe do enter that rest. It is our final rest, which is found in Jesus Christ. And from there, we're just waiting for the day he calls us home to give us a glory that we can't even imagine. Next week is Leviticus 26, 14 through 39. Surely worse than needle-poking nurses. It's entitled Assured Curses. That'll be our 49th Leviticus sermon. I have a final point for you today. The yoke is broken in Christ. Okay, don't carry those yokes around with you anymore. Cast them away. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Our poem today is called Promised Blessings. 
You shall not make idols for yourselves, not even of your favorite pup. Neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you for yourselves rear up. Nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God, and so to you this rule I do submit. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord, so shall it be. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season, the right amount to suit. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage till the time of sowing shall last. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely, nor shall you be downcast. I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. So understand, I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. And you will chase your enemies, so you shall do, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. Such shall be your might." For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. To this word, I will be true. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that marvelous sight that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. Lord God, surely you have broken our yoke and set us free. And now you dwell in us and walk among us too. Such marvelous love. How can it be that we have received such blessing from you? Thank you that you are our God because of Jesus. Thank you that we are now your people also. Such marvelous things you have done for us. Such gifts of love and mercy upon us you bestow. Hallelujah to you for your kind and gracious hand upon us. Hallelujah to you, O God, for our King our glorious Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful lessons of this word, which show us time and time again that we have a freedom in Christ that the world just doesn't seem to get. And if they would simply yield their hearts to you and they would bow their knee to you, they would understand that you are the source of joy that we're all hungering for and that all the things that we've searched for in our life which failed us are just, they're nothing. They're just nothings. And here we are waiting for the perfect thing, and it's found right there in you. Lord God, help us to concentrate on that fact. Help us to pursue you. Help us to keep our minds clear and to talk to you in the morning, in the night, in the times of distress. Talk with you, with others about you, and to share the love that you have given us all the days of our life. Help us to do these things. We're prone to wander. You know it. So help us to stay close to you all the time. We pray this, that you will be exalted and that we will be set as your people. Then we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.